Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Good to have you back, Father Sebastian, and hope you all enjoy the Bible study night. Please uh, begin in prayer. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and those in the tombs bestowing life. Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and those in the tombs bestowing life. We are uh, reading, or continuing our read, of Philippians tonight. It's a short little book, little epistle of Paul, jam-packed with beautiful, beautiful theology. This epistle, as I said last time, a little review for those that are new. I'm sure we have a few visitors uh, that have just uh, come tonight and were not here last week. When you read an epistle, when you read any piece of literature, an article in Time magazine, uh, a, uh, whatever it might be, you want to know who is the author, who is the intended audience, and what was the purpose of writing. The church tells us this is very important. Are reading books of the Bible. If you don't know who Paul is, or at what stage in his life, or of his journey when he's writing an epistle, or you don't know who the Philippians are, and what Paul did with them, or they did with him, and the various stories and acts, then you're going to be at a loss when you read an epistle like this. So make sure when you read any piece of literature, I don't care if it's Gone with the Wind, or the Trilogy of the Ring, or C.S. Lewis, or Make sure you know who is the author, who was the intended audience of that author, and what was the purpose of writing. When you know that, you'll be well on your way towards a better understanding of the content of the piece of literature. So the Philippians, we talked a little bit already about this, but I want to look at one text here uh, in Philippians chapter 1 as a little review for what we're going to see in chapter 3. In chapter 1, Paul had said this. Remember, he's in prison. He's in prison, as far as we can discern, in Rome. The captivity epistles were written, as I mentioned last time, during Paul's first captivity, as far as we can discern. During his first captivity, a large part of that was spent in Caesarea, or Caesarea, Maritime, there on the coast in Palestine. And then he also, then by boat, was taken to Rome stood before Caesar, and eventually was released. This was his first captivity. His second captivity, the one that most people are, I guess, more familiar with, is when he was then martyred for the faith. That happens later on. During his first captivity, while he's writing these epistles, and he writes Philippians, this one probably from Rome, in chapter 1, verse 19, he says this. Chapter 1, verse 19, yes, and I shall rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. We talked about how, and this is in your notes as well, that that line appears in Job three times. 
Paul has obviously been reading and meditating upon the book of Job in his own suffering. I've often recommended to people, when they come to me, they're, they're having a problem in their life, they're suffering, have you read the book of Job? Now, why is God doing this to me? Have you read Job? So you need to go read Job first. Once you've read Job about 300 times, then you need to read Paul's epistles in his captivity. And you'll start to understand that suffering is not a punishment from God. Suffering is the result of a situation of life, whatever it might be, something you may have brought upon yourself, or something that God allowed to happen in your life, but it is always for your good. It is always, as St. Paul says, for my deliverance, right? Now, Paul, in this particular situation, is taking the, the story of Job, and knowing that the end of the story of Job, that last chapter, Job makes it through this most horrific story and comes out on the other side better off than he started. And so Paul says, look, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. He knows that he's going to be released in this first captivity. He says this, As it is my eager expectation and hope that I shall not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. I had you last time, I think, underline that. Underline or highlight body whether by life or death, for to me to live is Christ, for to me is to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To die is gain. If it is to be life in the flesh, in the body, that means fruitful labor for me. Right? You can continue on and write some more epistles and continue on his missionary work. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Right? I can come visit you again and do some more work with you. Convinced of this latter issue, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. You can hear there Paul hopes to come see them again. And when he writes 1 Timothy and Titus after his release, he seems to be in Macedonia when he's doing this, probably in Philippi. Okay, now listen to that language. We get similar language in 1 Corinthians. Paul talks like this, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul speaks similarly of going away from the body to be with Christ. What is he talking about? And he's, he's talking about is this, as, as this is better for him. Why is that? Well, because at the present moment, our, our physical body, as we've talked about in other studies, our physical body is as yet unregenerated. Spiritually, we have been baptized into Christ. We have died with him, Romans 6. We have been buried with him and raised with him to newness of life. But then we exist as a composite being in the post-baptismal state. This sounds often, when Paul talks like this, it sounds like dualism. And there is a certain dualism here, but not to be confused with the pagan dualism. Pagan dualism, remember, believes that the flesh is evil, the material world is evil. Paul talks about a post-baptismal dualism, this composite 
creature who is both regenerated and not yet. Because he is in the spirit walking with Christ and trying to walk with Christ and following the spirit that's within him. He's a spiritually a resurrected being, never to die again. And yet his body, his flesh, often yearns for the old ways. In uh, theology, they sometimes call this concupiscence. The, the, when will that be solved? When will that be solved? Some would think of it, well, when finally I die and get rid of this body. Well, that's one part of the solution. But the other part of the solution, and extremely important, is when that body then rises from the dead. When the body then rises from the dead. And now you have a being which is fully regenerated, fully walking in spirit and body in Christ. Paul talks about this in Romans 8. He talks about how we yearn at the present time for the adoption as sons, our bodies. Right? Paul just said in Romans chapter 8 that we are children of God. We have the Spirit of God within us. We cry out, Abba, Father. And then he says we wait for the adoption as sons. What is he talking about? Well, you keep reading, of our bodies. Right? We're waiting for our bodies to die and rise from the dead. This is the same as what happened to Adam, remember. Adam died that day when he ate of that fruit. Remember, it did not say, if you eat that fruit, I will kill you, but rather if you eat that fruit, you will die as a result of an action, turning away from God. And Adam did die that day. And the sign of that is the fact that he realizes he is naked and he hides himself from his wife. His wife hides from the, the relationship has been broken. There's no longer trust. And then when God comes on the scene, they hide from him. The relationship has been shattered between, between mankind and God, God and fellow man. And so that shattering spiritual break of the relationship, that spiritual death, then eventually results in a physical death. And the same thing happens then in our baptism, in which we have a spiritual resurrection, which will eventually result in a bodily resurrection. Salvation is not complete until your bodies are raised from the dead. Paul will talk about that in chapter 3. But before we get to that, I want to remind you of what he said here, because often what he says here in chapter 1, verse 19 and following, along with 2 Corinthians, along with some dualism in the modern mindset, has often led to a misunderstanding of what is salvation. You ask the average Christian today, what happens when you die? Well, my body will, you know, be rot in the grave or something, or maybe today be burned up in ashes and tossed to the wind. Who knows what someone's going to do? And then my spirit will float up into the clouds, up into heaven, into the sky to be with God. Now, there, the, st the story might vary at some points, depending on wh with whom you're speaking. Uh, maybe a stop in purgatory, maybe a little conversation with Peter at the pearly gates. But in the end, all Christians will continue the story eventually, and they'll, they'll talk about being in heaven. In the clouds, right? You ask them, what's it like? Well, it's very white and fluffy and very bright. What are you doing in heaven? Well, I'm, I'm seeing a bright light and I'm hearing lots of nice singing. What are you going to do there? Well, I thought I always, always want to pick up an instrument, maybe the harp. And, uh, and what are you going to sing? Well, Handel's Messiah, Hallelujah Chorus, maybe, I don't know. And then how long does that last? What do you mean? Heaven's forever, isn't it? 
Well, no, heaven's not forever. If that's what, if that's salvation, if you think that is salvation, you're a dualist heretic. This is what Paul was fighting against, what John was fighting against. You say it in the creed every Sunday, but we just don't pay attention. We believe in one baptism for the forgiveness of sin. That's Romans 6. And the resurrection of the dead. That's Romans 8. And the life of the world to come. What's that world described as? Not fluffy clouds. But heaven on earth. Not earth in the heavens, but heaven on earth. This is why Christ rose from the dead. Christus resurrexit. Siku dixit. Hallelujah. Let's continue. Now, Philippians chapter 3. Paul's writing to the Philippians, remember. Paul's writing to the Philippians. Now, these Philippians were his most favorite community. They never gave him a hard time. They loved him and he loved them. We talked a lot about this last week. But he writes this to in chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, chapter 3, verse 1, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is not irksome to me and is safe for you. So to write the same things to you. We talked about this before. To repeat something he said before to them, maybe in a previous letter. You can see the introduction to uh, Philippians and the discussion about that last week. Or maybe to write the same things to you that I had to write to other communities. Who knows? Whatever the case may be, what is he talking about? He says it is safe for you to hear this information repeated for whatever reason it might be repeated in their case. He's worried about them. What is he worried about? What is he going to warn them about? Something that, he's heard, that he knows they've heard before, a warning. Verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the lawless ones, the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. We talked about this last time, right? Mutilate the flesh. Where does Paul talk about mutilating the flesh? Well, that's in Galatians, right? If you go back and you read Galatians chapter 5, Paul talks about how circumcision, Christian circumcision for religious purpose. Right? Forget modern medical practices in, in the United States and England. Okay, let's put that aside for a minute. But Christian circumcision, Judaizing, circumcising so that you can be saved as a Christian, is a mutilation of the flesh, he says. He says, I wish those who would, who would force you to be circumcised would mutilate themselves. He's not very happy. That's Galatians chapter 5. So he's warning them, the Philippians, about the Judaizer heresy. Now, why is that? Look what he says. For we are the true circumcision. In the Greek, though, the word true is not there. The RSV puts it there as a what's called a dynamic translation, trying to get the, the, the sense of it, of what's being said. But I, I prefer to just leave the word out there. We are the circumcision. You get the more of the force of what he's saying. Because all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Colossians chapter 2, have been have been circumcised with a circumcision not made with the hands, right? By being part of the body of Christ. Christ kept the law. Christ kept the Sabbath. Christ was kosher. He, he, he was circumcised. And if you've been baptized into him, then if you go about trying to keep the law and do this and do that according to the old code, what you're doing is you're denying the sacramentality, the reality 
of your baptism. That's not a good idea. So he says, he says, for we are the circumcision, right? Ignore these people who are trying to force you to be circumcised and keep kosher. In your baptism of Christ, we are the circumcision. We are Israel. As he said at the end of Galatians, we are the true Israel, or literally in the, in the Greek, we are the Israel of God. Who worship God in spirit and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Right? What's he talking about? These Judaizers would take these baptized Gentile Christians and say, look, you're not really saved. In order to be saved, you've got to be circumcised and keep kosher in the flesh. Right? Those of you who, uh, who were in the Sophia Symposium on the New Testament remember this. We talked about this, where in Acts chapters 10 and 11 and 15, Acts chapters 10, 11 and 15, where the early church has to deal with this problem. These Gentile Christians are coming in. They're not circumcised. They're not kosher. And so the Jewish Christians, which all Christians were Jewish Christians at that point, weren't sure what to do with them. Do we circumcise them? Do we tell them to keep kosher? And the council in Acts 15, the Absolute Council said, no, what's the point of that? Why would you do that? Well, as you know, councils may make declarations, but they don't always solve problems very quickly. This is before fax machines and emails and things. So it takes a while, sometimes a century or two, for an, a council to take an effect. And so it took a while. It took, oh, at least in this case, it took about 100 years before the Judaic heresy really fizzled out. Uh, it took a big hit in 70 AD with the conquering Jerusalem by the Romans, but, but it still continued to hang on. And then every now and then, over 2,000 years, it's reared its ugly head. Uh, in the Middle Ages, there was a Judaizer uh, heresy that developed. They all, they all went off and apostatized, became Jews eventually, and left Christianity. And then today, modern examples would be the Messianic Judaism, which is neither Judaism nor Messianic, but that's for another talk. And then the Seventh-day Adventists. These guys are dabbling in, in, you know, wearing a yarmulke, eating gefilte fish, playing with matzo balls. But they don't really, they don't really know what they're getting themselves into. And eventually, before you know it, they start playing around at the local synagogue. And before you know it, they eventually just apostatize. Okay? Jews have been talking to Christians for 2,000 years. They've got some apologetics. And so when you get a Messianic Jew or a Seventh-day Adventist going to the local synagogue, thinking he's going to learn something about his faith, before he knows it, he's lost his faith. All right, so here in the early church, they had to fight the first major heresy the church had to deal with was the Judaizer heresy. We have dealt with this a number of times in other studies. If you want more on this, you can go back and listen to the Institute lecture I gave on Introduction to St. Paul, Introduction to St. Paul, and then also, like I said, those of you involved in the Sophia Symposium of the New Testament, we dealt with it as well. All right, so then why is he warning them of this? Because if you recall, the Judaizer heresy spread from Jerusalem north into Antioch. That's where Paul first encountered them. Paul had to go down to Jerusalem to deal with this, the council. Those Judaizer Christians, those heretics, were no longer welcome in Jerusalem, as it says in Acts 15. So the only place they could go from there would be north up into Asia Minor, which is where they start causing trouble for Paul in the, in the Galatian churches which is why he writes this letter to the Galatian churches dealing with this very issue, the Judaizer heresy. Well, if you recall, 
Macedonia is not far from there, right? When Paul made his trips, eventually he went across the Adriatic over into, the, into Macedonia. And so Paul anticipates the movement of these Judaizer heretics from, obviously, already Jerusalem to Antioch, and now into bothering his churches in Galatia. He knows that very soon they're going to be in Macedonia, even maybe knocking on the door of the church of Philippi. So he warns them ahead of time before they get there. And he lays down his authority as he's done in other places where he has to deal with the Judaizer heresy. When the Judaizer heretics appear, they usually say, Paul didn't tell you to be circumcised because Paul's not really a Jew. Paul didn't teach you to be keeping kosher because he didn't even know what kosher was. He's from Tarsus. He doesn't really know the law. So when Paul has to deal with this issue, he lays down his CV, his curriculum vitae. And so that's what he does here. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinks he has reason or confidence of the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as of the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the Torah, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as refuse in order that I may gain Christ to be found in him, found in him. Right? How's that? Through baptism. Galatians 3.27, all of you have baptized in Christ have put on Christ, right? Like a garment. Not having a righteousness of my own based on the Torah, but that which is through the faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that depends on faith. There's an example I mentioned to you before, a few places where when you're reading in the Pauline epistles, when you're reading in the Pauline epistles, you'll hear in the English translation, in the English translation, you'll get, uh, usually you'll lose the article. Why is that? Because the RSV, although I like it, is originally a Protestant translation. The RSV Catholic edition is a Catholic edition of the Revised Standard Version, which was a revision of the Standard Version, the King James. And it goes, well, the Standard Version, the American Standard Version, all that's a long genealogical history. And so you have to be careful when you're reading the Catholic RSV, which is an excellent translation. There are no perfect translations out there. There are a number of places where you'll still get some old Lutheranism hanging out in the crevices. Now you, you say, well, shouldn't we read a different one then? Well, tragically, I have not yet found an English translation that doesn't have problems. So find one you like or you have in front of you and start reading it, okay, and deal with the problems. But here's a classic example. The word faith in Paul, when he's talking about faith, he says the faith, the faith. He's referring to the new covenant the belief in Jesus, that he will save you through your baptism, through the church. And when he talks about the law, or he says just in your English translation, simply law, it's the Torah. Now, why does it not appear in your English translation? Well, it has to do with how Greek works, and also sometimes a translator isn't the best theologian or exegete. So here's a classic example. When you look what it says here, it says, he says in verse 9, um, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own based on law, but on that which is through faith. 
Well, yes, in the Greek, there are no articles there. It doesn't say the and the. But that's because both of them are in a prepositional construction. They're both, they have a preposition in front of them. In Greek, you drop the, you drop the article. So what you need to do is you need to look in the context and just circle out from the use of a, a word from it when it's used of the preposition and look in the context and see how the author's using it. And here's a classic example. So a Lutheran read of this, you could make this very Lutheran just by you have in the English here, and be found not having a righteousness of my own based on law, that is what I do, but that which is through faith in Christ, what I believe. That's not what it says. That's not what it says, because look what it says, it continues, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Well, guess what's in the Greek there? Depends on the faith. There's an article there. The faith, which means you have to put the article back in your prepositional construction in the word faith earlier, and also the word Torah. Of course, you want to have that in there. You want to have the word the in front of law, because we're talking about the law. Right? We saw it earlier. Look what he said, verse 6. As to a zeal of persecuted church, as to righteousness under the law. Do you see the article there? As in the Greek, the Torah. Blameless. So that means that if you have the law there, and you have the faith at the end of verse 9, then that means that in the middle, when you have a prepositional construction and you don't know whether it's supposed to be definite definite you have to circle out and look so translate into the english again verse 9 be found in him how do you get in him for paul romans 6 galatians 3 27 through baptism not having a righteous of my own based on the torah but that which is through the faith in christ you see how that works why is he saying all that right now what does the faith in Christ do for you? you? Ask somebody. It'll save me. Save you from what? Oh, from hell, I guess, or from something. Yeah, keep going. What's it going to save you from? What did Jesus Christ come to save you from? From sin and death. Christus resurrexit. Look what Paul continues to say here. He says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. What's that have to do with it? Everything. The power of his resurrection. And look at, the, look at verse 10. That I may know him. That means what's being said here is intimately related to what was said in verse 9. And may share in his sufferings as he said in Romans 8, becoming like him in his death, Romans 6, that if possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead, which is what it's all about. That's what it's all about. That is the good news. Do you hear that? This is the good news. This is the gospel that needs to be preached, that is no longer preached this is the great tragedy of our time. You know, you hear adults, priests, or bishops, and people wringing their hands. Oh, people don't go to church anymore. Well, no wonder. We're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the point? The good news is this. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death unto those in the tombs, bestowing life 
Siku Dixit, hallelujah. This is what the church says in her liturgy. Lex orandi, lex credendi, an ancient patristic saying. What we say, what we pray in our liturgy is what we believe. But unfortunately, nobody prays what the early Christians prayed anymore. They're not paying attention. So, if you remember nothing else from these four hours on the letter of Philippians, I want you to remember Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11. Because that is the good news. That is the good news. That is the good news. This is the good news that your neighbor needs to hear. This is the good news. I just came back from a funeral today. I just came back from a funeral. I saw a man buried in the earth and people crying and weeping. And you know what we read, as the church requires to be read at a funeral? We read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We do not want you to grieve, my brethren, as those who have no hope, right? People who are unbaptized. Have no hope. What are you talking about? Have no hope. Having hope in the resurrection. He says, for just as Christ died and rose from the dead, rose, so we believe that when Christ returns, he will bring with him those who have died. And those who have died, who are asleep in the Lord, will be raised from the dead. This is what we say in the creed every Sunday. We wait for the second coming of Christ. We wait for the resurrection of the dead. We wait. We believe he will come and judge the earth. And we believe that heaven, the heavenly Jerusalem, as the book of Revelation says, will descend to the earth and remain. The Garden of Eden will be replanted. We'll come back to that. Chapter 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Right? This is called theosis or sanctification, the process of walking according to the Spirit, anticipating the coming resurrection of your body. Brethren, verse 12, but verse 12 not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. When? In his baptism into Christ became part of the body of Christ, a member of the body of Christ. If Jesus is risen from the dead, then you shall rise as well. Brethren, I do not consider that I have, that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forget, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. What's he looking for? I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, what's the prize? What's the inheritance? What's the glory to come, as Paul says, a hundred places elsewhere? The coming bodily resurrection. Let those of us who are mature be thus minded. And if in, if in anything you are otherwise minded, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brethren, join in imitating me and mark those who so live as you have an example in us so 
Paul here and in chapter 4 and elsewhere in his epistles, he'll talk about how he has taught the Christians how to live. He has taught them. He has taught them the faith through not only his words, but his deeds. And the faith is then passed on this way. Turn with me, for example, to 1 Timothy, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This will be to the right in your Bible, so over to his personal epistles. 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says in verse 10, Now you have observed my teaching. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10. You have observed my teaching, Timothy my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfast, my persecutions, my sufferings, what befell me at Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, what persecution I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and posture will go on to that worse. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. What's he mean there? Learn from what he, what he just talked about, from living with Paul, hearing his teachings, seeing how Paul endured persecutions and lived his life. This is what Timothy had learned, right? The faith is not just an intellectual ascent. It's a way of life. He says, and what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, right? He says elsewhere, turn with me to, uh, if you turn now to your left, in your Bibles, uh, to 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. He says, and we'll go up to verse 13 to get the context. You can see how important this statement is. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit. Right? What is he talking about? He's talking about baptism there. And belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. So that you may obtain, so that you may obtain future, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ? Again, you read through all of Paul's epistles. It was the resurrection of Jesus. So he's waiting for you to attain that. So then, look at this. So then. So what he just said about the fact that you've been sanctified by the Spirit, right? You're a Christian now. And you're awaiting the future bodily resurrection. Through the, and you, how, you learned all this and through the gospel he preached. Don't, we're not talking about one of the four you know, evangelists. We're talking about the, the good news that we just talked about. The good news, Jesus risen from the dead. Verse 14. Uh, to this gospel, you uh, to this he called you through our gospel, our, our, our good news we preach to you, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look at this, verse 15. So then, underline so then maybe 300 times. So then. So then, brethren, stand firm. So if you want to end where uh, the, the, the journey that we set you on through your sanctification of the Spirit, if you want to end in the glory of Jesus Christ, if you're looking for the future bodily resurrection and sanctification, and, and you're looking for future 
life with God on earth, salvation, eternity. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. This is his second letter to the Thessalonians. Right? Paul had spent a lot of time with them, teaching them. And so he says, everything I taught you when I was there, hold to that. And, of course, anything I've thrown in these letters for you. Why does he say it that way? Because when Paul was with them, he got chased out of Thessalonica in the middle of the night. He had to leave. And it seems as you read these letters that he hadn't had a chance to talk in great detail about eschatology the end things, the second coming of Christ, what it's going to be like, which is the stuff, of course, that you talk about at the end of a catechetical program. Right? You don't start out by talking about the second, second coming of Christ. You start out by talking about Adam and Eve. right? And then you talk about the second coming and the end of all things and the, and the restoration of the garden. So Paul had to leave Thessalonica in the middle of the night in a hurry, it seems. This is a, the tail end of, of uh, a typical... Uh, catechetical program seems to have been cut short, which may be why then the Thessalonians are confused about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. What's the details? What's it going to be like? And so Paul has to tell them that not only, of course, what I taught you while I was there, everything I was there teaching you and doing with you, but also the stuff I've put in these letters for you as well, which is some clarifications about the second coming of Christ that they needed to hear. Okay, so what kind of traditions is he talking about then? Well, everything that has to do with the faith that you don't find in these letters, at the very least. Right? So to what extent? What does he mean? Well, how do you baptize? How much water do you use? Should it be warm or cold? Right? What do you say to someone before you baptize them? How do you celebrate the Eucharist? What kind of oil do you should use or laying on of hands in the chrismation, confirmation? How do you do these things? How do you pray? Which way should you pray? Which way should you face? What do you do with your hands? Put them in your pockets? Put them on your head? What do you do? So how Paul lived when he was with them, how he prayed, how he baptized, how he celebrated the Eucharist is what he's talking about. The whole happy meal. Okay? An example of this, again, another place is in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Turn with me there and we'll go back to Philippians. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me, he says, as I am of Christ. So what he means, he understands that the faith is going to be passed down, not just from words, but in a manner of life a way of doing things, not just things written down on a piece of paper. This is what we have historically called in the church for 2,000 years, the oral tradition, the oral tradition. Okay, so what, what, is, what do we mean by that? What, is, what, is, what would be an example of some of this oral tradition? Well, <laughs> he gets into it here in chapter 11. He talks about liturgical problems in the church in Corinth. He talks about how to gather and how they should be dressed. He talks about celebration of the Lord's Supper, verse 17 and following. He tells them, he reminds them about the words of institution. 
he reminds them about how serious it is. In verse 27, he says, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord, then worthy man will be guilty of profaning symbols. No, the body and blood of the Lord. Now, what's he, what does that have to do with chapter 11, verse 1? Well, I'll tell you what has to do with it. Look at verse 2. I commend you because you remember me, right? Be imitators of me as I am of the Christ. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I deliver them to you. When did he deliver them to them? When he was with them. When he celebrated the Eucharist with them. When he showed them how to baptize. When he showed them how to address and gather in community and how to raise their hands in prayer. Okay? And then finally, before we jump back to Philippians there, I want you to go back to now, back to 2 Timothy, and look what he says to Timothy related to all this. Is this just for Timothy? Is this just for the Thessalonians? Is this just for the Corinthians? Is this just for first century Christians? And then after that, forget it? No. What would be the point of that? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. For this gospel, right, the good news he preached about the resurrection of Jesus and everything we've talked about. For this gospel, for the good news, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. And therefore I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and I am sure that he is able to highlight, guard until that day what has been entrusted, highlight to me. That word. Who's going to, something's been entrusted to Paul. What is it? It's the faith, right? The gospel, the good news. Jesus is risen from the dead. Secret Dixie, alleluia. And he says, he says that I am, I, it's been entrusted to me. He says, but who's in charge of guarding it and making sure of its purity and that it will be preserved? God. Paul can't do it on his own. He says, follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith, heard from me. Look at that, heard from me. Not read from me here, heard from me. In the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus, and verse 14, guard, highlight, the truth that has been, highlight, entrusted to you by the power of your memory. Oh, that's not what it says. By the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. Now, why is it important for the things that Paul received and were entrusted with, that were guarded by Christ, that he preached, to be passed on to Timothy, and that those things be guarded by the power of the Holy Spirit that were entrusted to him? Because look what he says in chapter 2. You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me before many witnesses entrust, hear that language, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see that? It's because of that that we are here today, 2,000 years later, preaching the gospel. 
It is because of the power of the Holy Spirit, chapter 1, verse 14. It is the power of the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, as Jesus says, John chapters 14, 15, and 16, that will remind the faithful of what Jesus has taught and cause them to remember it forever. This is the tradition, and this is why we are still preaching the resurrection of the dead. All right, now back to Philippians uh, briefly, and then we'll take our break. Philippians chapter, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, brethren, join in imitating me. Do you hear that? Join in imitating me and mark those who so live as you have an example in us. For many whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. How is that? How could they become enemies of the cross of Christ? These are obviously apostates. They were Christians that have, have lost the faith or become heretics. He tells you who they are. Their belly, they're, they're, he says their end is destruction. Their God is the belly. What was he talking about? These are the Judaizers who are worried about, you know, whether you're going to eat gefilte fish or matzo balls and how you're going to be saved by it. This is those who avoided eating uh, swine flesh and things like that. They kept kosher. That's not going to save you. The kosher laws weren't given until 450 years after Abraham. So if it's the kosher laws that save you, Abraham wasn't saved. If it's circumcision that saves you, then Abraham wasn't saved either because he was determined to be saved. It was accounted him as righteous decades before he was ever circumcised. We talked about the spirit. That's the Judaizer heresy. Tragedy. But look what he says there. Enemies of the cross of Christ. When have you been crucified with Christ? Paul says it many places. Right? You have been, you have died with him. You have been buried with him. You have been raised with him. You have been crucified with him, he says, in your baptism into Christ. And remember, baptism, chrismation, or confirmation, whatever you want to call it, and the reception of the Eucharist was always done together. One sacramental liturgical experience. When you break those things apart, a lot of times it leads to catechetical disasters, as it often is today. But in the early church, as you still see at the in, in the Eastern Church, when we baptize babies and confirm them, they receive communion, and when you see also in the adult, in an adult Baptism in the West, this is still preserved, especially you can see it, of course, recently at most of your churches at the Easter Vigil, when an adult was baptized, immediately confirmed, and then immediately received Holy Communion. Why? Because the being baptized is you've been, you've been taken up from the murky waters like Adam of old, like a new Adam now. The breath of life and confirmation has been blown in your nostrils, and you are now a living being, and you are welcome to the fruit of the tree of life, the body and blood of Jesus like Adam of old, restored, of which Jesus said, he eats my flesh and drinks my blood and has life in him, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is the good news. And so Paul says, but our, our citizenship, our commonwealth, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, remember, what is he talking about? It's in heaven. Well, it's in waiting, right? It's in, it's in waiting until the end when Christ comes. But our, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await, 
Notice that? From it we await. We are here waiting for Christ to come back. A Savior. Well, we're awaiting a Savior? I thought we've already been saved. You're not saved until your body is raised from the dead. You may be half saved. You may Salvation may be, have begun, but salvation is not complete until your bodies are raised from the dead. Christus resurrexi. But our citizenship is in heaven. It's in waiting. And from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will change our lowly body, this mortal body. He will change it to be like his glorious body. You see the word glory there? This is what Paul's talking about. He talks about the glory of Jesus Christ. We're awaiting a future glory. He's talking about the future bodily resurrection, joining in the resurrection with Jesus Christ, entering again into the Garden of Eden restored. God dwelling with man. That was his plan, and his plan will not be thwarted. Who will change our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power which enables him even to subject all things to himself. And to him be glory. Are there any questions before we move into chapter 4? Eileen asks, will those going to hell also have their bodies raised but in a very bad state? Oh, this is a good question. I'm glad you asked that. We're going to come back to that topic at the end of this hour. We're going to conclude with uh, an examination of the end of the book of Revelation where we'll come back to this topic that, of course, I keep hitting on. And the reason why I keep doing that is if we are Christians, we call ourselves Christians, and we don't know what the gospel of Jesus Christ is, then I'm telling you what, we got a big problem on our hands. If you're wondering why there's a vocation crisis, if you're wondering why there's a morality crisis in the church, if you're wondering why there's not a belief in the real presence in the, in the Eucharist in the church, if you're wondering why there's mass attendance problems in your church, because there is a really big problem that is causing all of that. And that is, we're not preaching the gospel. We're not preaching the good news. And if we're not doing that, then of course every, the wheels are going to fall off the cart, as you can see in many of your parishes happening. So we'll come back to that issue of the bodily resurrection. Uh, anything else? Uh, just a quick thing asking which Bible, Bible you're using or whether you're translating from the Greek. <laughs> oh, uh, well, I had the, uh, the text in front of me I have is the RSV. Catholic edition from Ignatius Press. Okay. The, um, uh, that old blue one, you remember the blue covered one? If you can kind of see that little old blue cover from those of you who remember those days. There's a new one out, a red covered, brown covered one. Very nice. Uh, a little bigger, uh, easier to read, the paper color. A very nice edition. And they did fix a few things uh, with the translations. That's a second edition of the Catholic edition. And they fixed a few spots. Uh, but they didn't fix all of these. So you're not going to, what you need to do is when you're reading the translation, you've got to, there he is, Daniel's got it. He's got his, uh, the new Ignatius second edition there. Very nice. The, um, what you need to do is you have to know the faith when you're reading the Bible, right? The New Testament books were not written, nor were any books of the Bible written to be 
put into the drawer of a Hilton or Best Western, hoping someone's going to have a come to Jesus moment with them. These books, every one of the books that's in your Bible, in fact, the very collecting of the books and the order in which they appear in your Bible all has to do with the liturgical lectionary cycle of the synagogue and the early church. Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, and they meant it, right? The, the, the word of God, in the, as you have it in what we call the scriptures, the Bible, the ordering of the books, the collection of the books, everything ha- is a result of the early church prayer life, liturgical prayer. So, um, uh, so when you're reading the, the Bible, you're reading the New Testament, if you're just reading it and you're hoping you're going to somehow figure out the faith from it, forget it. You are reading it contrary to the original intent of any of the authors. Every author, Paul writing the letter to the Philippians, uh, is writing to a community that is already a liturgical, celebrating, Christian, baptizing, Eucharist, participating in community. Okay? There is... um, Father John Paul Heil, Father John Paul Heil, if you want to read more about this, he's the chair of New Testament at Catholic University. Uh, he was my, the director of my dissertation. He has done, he's kind of made himself famous for this, his work in this area. What's starting to happen is Christian scholars are beginning to realize that you can't understand the New Testament unless you first understand the liturgical celebration of the early church. Because when these books were written, let's say Matthew or Luke, they were being written, they're the written form of the oral preaching of the apostles at the liturgical celebrations every Sunday. If you look at John, for example, it's quite obvious that you're looking at lectionary, lections, you're looking at little lectionary readings. That's why if you read John, every section keeps, it's the same story over and over again. The characters change or whatever, but it's the same gospel being preached. Because every one of those stories in the gospel of John, for the most part, the chapter divisions as you have them, are probably in origin the oral telling of the life of Jesus as it pertained to the lectionary cycle in the year of the early church. And then eventually it was written down, collected up, written down. And, uh, and we call that the Gospel of John. The, the New Testament uh, epistles, for example, Paul, when do you think the Philippians would have read this epistle? When it was bound by a Chinese publisher and mailed to them? You know, and they bought it at Walmart? No. It was sent by, a, uh, by uh, the, the, the Epaphroditus, the guy who had come to help him in, in jail. Remember him from last week. Epaphroditus re- delivered this letter to the church in Philippi. And when do you think the Philippians would have gathered together to hear it? Well, there were no fax machines, no emails. How do you gather the church together? Well, they've already got a program. They all get together in a quiet place on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus by breaking bread. This is when it would have been read. It would have been read at the following Sunday after Epaphroditus had arrived in Philippi. When the Christians got together, some of them may have already heard. Yeah, there's a letter from Paul. I can't wait to hear it. Others hadn't heard about it yet. Really? Paul wrote a letter? Yeah, Epaphroditus is back. Why is he back? Was he supposed to help Paul? No, nah, he'll explain it all in the letter. Shh, just listen. Epaphroditus, bring the letter. And the bishop 
unrolls the scroll, and the bishop begins to read it to the community. That was in the midst of a liturgical gathering at which after that reading, they would have celebrated the breaking of bread, the Eucharist, which is the exact same spot in which the epistle of Paul are read today in the liturgy, just before the breaking of bread. Right? So you can see how liturgically documents are and why you can't approach the scriptures, the New Testament, as if they're you know, just some sort of a, uh, some truths floating out in outer space that you can, you know, no, they, they are, they are, they're grounded in history. As Cardinal Newman said, as he investigated the development of Christian doctrine, as an Anglican, to know history is to cease being Protestant. All right, we'll come back to that with some more questions at the end if anyone has some. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.